Hey, science nerds, welcome to Beyond the Abstract, a podcast where we talk about the coolest, cutting edge, basic science research papers in a way that just about anyone can understand. Hey everyone, welcome back to episode 8 of Beyond the Abstract. Again, we've run out of friends, unfortunately. Took one week, so (laughs) here we are. Today, the paper we're going to talk about is something that you've probably read about in the media. It's the novel coronavirus that's been going around that started in Wuhan, China. And luckily, Ellen is actually a former virologist at the NIH. Former, yes. In undergrad, I studied endogenous retroviruses, actually, which are kind of like the viral fossil record in vertebrate genomes. And then when I was at the NIH, I studied SIV, or simian immunodeficiency virus, which is a model for HIV infection. So let's see how much of that translates to coronavirus. (laughs) I hear retroviruses are cool again. Yeah, making a comeback. (laughs) Derek, you had some background in viral work as well, right? I wouldn't say viruses per se, but in one of my grad school rotations, I did study the effects of flu on lung regeneration. So I am kind of familiar with that respiratory virus realm sort of thing. It's super relevant for today since, as you probably know, the novel coronavirus is a respiratory virus. Again, it emerged from Wuhan, China, and it's really been dominating the news cycle. Like, I feel like you really can't open up a news source or news app without at least a few articles about the virus. It seems like people, obviously not only in China, but all across the globe are really on high alert. The World Health Organization declared it a global health emergency as well. We're recording this as of February 11th, so all the statistics that we're going to be talking about today are as of February 11th. And as of today, there's been 43,148 documented cases with 1,018 deaths. So it's really been affecting a lot of different countries all around the world. And in the U.S., the CDC has declared a national public emergency. And there's been a ton of flying restrictions in place in multiple countries, a lot of cities in China on lockdown to try to get a hold on this virus and stop it from spreading. I feel like with all the news headlines, a lot of them sound really, really scary. And while I think there is reason to be alarmed, it's not a reason really to panic. And that's what we don't want to do. We're hoping that this episode sheds light into current research being done on coronavirus and into just how fast-paced research can be sometimes, which is really, really cool and encouraging. And we also just want to give you the facts. We want to let you know about coronavirus, how it compares to other respiratory viruses that you may or may not have heard of, and really dispel a lot of misinformation that's been going on. So all of The information we're giving you today is from reputable sources, the WHO, the CDC, just so you know you can rely on these numbers. Yeah, one thing that's so scary about this outbreak is because it is spreading so fast, over 40,000 cases have been documented. And when we're in the early stages of an outbreak, that means there's a lot unknown about the virus. So scientists are trying to investigate about how this virus is going to behave, but because it's so widespread in news, there's a lot of misinformation and people making assumptions based on limited data. 
So it is very important to be cautious, and these scientists are doing great work investigating all they can about this spread, but causing this panic isn't really beneficial to making progress in helping combat the spread. So the paper we're talking about today is titled The Novel Coronavirus 2019, we're just going to call it 2019 NCOV from now on, uses the SARS coronavirus receptor ACE2 and the cellular protease TMPRSS2 for entry into target cells. And this was quote-unquote, published in BioArchive on January 31st by the Pullman Group at the Leibniz Institute for Primary Research in Germany. So BioArchive, it's not a published journal. It's kind of a repository for what we call preprints. And this is something we'll get into at the end in its role in moving research forward at a much faster pace than ever before, which is really, really cool, but some of the caveats that go along with it as well. But before we get into all of that, I do want to talk about some background, as we usually do, about viral entry. And Ellen is, I'm sure, going to be able to chime in since she knows all about viruses. (laughs) For some viruses, like coronavirus, which are enveloped, meaning they have this protective coating surrounding their genetic material, such as DNA or RNA, in order to enter a cell, the host cell has to have two specific types of proteins. So the first is a receptor. So a receptor protein anchors the virus onto the host cell. And the protein receptor on the host cell usually binds to another protein on the membrane of the virus. In the case of coronavirus, we call this the spike protein. And the second type of protein it has to have is a protease. Now, proteases cleave the anchoring protein so the virus can then fuse into the cell and inject, in a way, its genetic material into the cell. Yeah, and these two proteins are really important when we're studying viral life cycles and viral entry because these are the types of proteins that determine the cells that viruses can affect. Viruses typically have certain types of cells and certain types of body sites that they like to infect. The way they determine this is if, for example, for coronavirus, if their spike protein can interact with the receptors and proteases on the target cell. And this will become important when we talk a little bit later about how they're trying to study how the coronavirus is spreading in humans. So what exactly are coronaviruses? Well, coronaviruses are actually a family of viruses that cause respiratory illnesses ranging from the common cold to pneumonia. And there are actually hundreds of viruses within this family, and they can affect multiple, multiple species, but only seven, including the 2019 NCOV, are actually known to infect humans. But these viruses can sometimes evolve to infect new species. For example, the 2019 NCOV is hypothesized to have started in bats and then somehow evolved to be able to infect human cells. Other famous coronaviruses that you may have heard of include SARS and MERS. So SARS stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, and MERS stands for Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. And these are two really severe types of coronaviruses that caused epidemics back in early 2000 and early 2010. It was around 2002 for SARS and 2012 for MERS. These viruses also have spike proteins. These are proteins that are on the outside coating of the virus and help them enter the cell. So what makes the Wuhan 2019 NCOV so special? Well, so Wuhan is actually a major city in the Hubei province in China. This is where the virus 
started and it's also a major travel hub so millions and millions of people travel through and live in this city which makes any sort of outbreak spread really easily so 2019 NCOV and SARS are all within this coronavirus family and they a lot of the time share really similar characteristics so these authors are wondering what can we learn from SARS and how can this inform us about how the 2019 NCOV works and maybe lead to more research that results in a vaccine or treatment or other things like that. So since SARS and 2019 NCOV are in the same family, first these authors wanted to know is it possible that they actually use the same receptor on host cells to enter the cell? And again, SARS uses a receptor known as ACE2 and a protease known as TMPRSS2 to enter a cell. So the first thing that these authors did was they inserted the spike protein from SARS and 2019 NCOV into VZV, which is known as the varicella virus, or more commonly chickenpox, in order to build this Frankenstein-like virus to study the specific parts of the virus. And this essentially lets them know really specifically about the function of this one spike protein and whether it acts similar for the two of these viruses. And after they made this Frankenstein virus, they infected cells originating from different animals like humans, monkeys, hamsters, pigs, bats, mice, cow, dogs, like <laughs> literally everything under the sun. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that SARS and 2019 NCOV spike proteins, they actually infect the exact same species of cells. And this is really cool. Like you said, they wanted to screen a bunch of different types of cells from different species. And they were excited, I'm sure, when they saw that the NCOV virus and the SARS virus infect the same species of cells. Because this shows them that these two viruses are likely targeting the same host cell receptors or proteases. And this helps give them evidence that these two viruses are behaving similarly. Now, not all human cells actually express this ACE2 receptor protein. And we know from studying SARS that cells have to have this protein in order for SARS to enter. So what they did next was really cool. What if they forced cells to actually express this protein, is it possible then that SARS or NCOV 2019 could then infect the cell? And this is what they did. They forced human cells that normally don't express ACE2 to express ACE2 and then infected them. And what they found was that expression of ACE2 allowed both 2019 NCOV and SARS to infect these cells. Essentially, this tells us that ACE2 is a really, really important receptor for cells to be infected by both 2019 NCOV and SARS. So we know that SARS and NCOV are similar in the host cell receptor that they target, but we know that proteases are also important for host cell entry. So did they also look to see if the NCOV targets the same protease as SARS? That's what you want to know next. So we know now that these two viruses both use the same receptor in order to enter cells, but then the next step is the protease. Do they use the same protease as well in order for the genetic material to actually enter the cell? So SARS again uses this one protease specifically known as TMPRSS2 to complete this whole viral entry process. And what we can do is actually inhibit TMPRSS2 with drugs to prevent SARS infection. So 
Essentially, we can do the same thing with 2019 NCOV. We can infect cells with 2019 NCOV and then inhibit TMPRSS2 and see, okay, is this virus still able to inhibit these cells? And the answer is, unsurprisingly, no. TMPRSS2 is also required by 2019 NCOV to actually enter cells. And not all cells actually express TMPRSS2. So cells that naturally don't express TMPRSS2 are resistant to both SARS and 2019 NCOV infection, which is really cool. And again, like before, by forcing cells to express ACE2 allowed both of these viruses to infect them. If we force these cells to also express TMPRSS2, it then allows these viruses to actually infect the cell. It's cool showing that these viruses are similar in the targeting of these molecules on host cells. And the reason we want to study similarities between SARS and this novel coronavirus is if we targeted these viruses, we want to be able to target them in the same way. So I'm wondering if they have any data that humans that have been exposed to SARS are maybe protected from this novel virus. So this is the really cool part of the paper. They want to see if prior infection with SARS or vaccination, because people have been trying to create a vaccine for SARS for a really long time, ever since the outbreak started back in 2002, could these prior infections for vaccines be protective against 2019 NCOV. So the immune system has something we call a memory of old infections where they produce antibodies so that if the infection returned, the body is essentially able to better fight the pathogen. And this is the basis of vaccines such as the measles, the flu, all different vaccines that you get are all based on this immune system memory. And patients that had SARS then produce antibodies against the virus. By taking serum, which is the part of blood that actually contains these antibodies, from patients that previously had SARS, and then adding it to cells, and then trying to infect them with 2019 NCOV, they wanted to see if this had any effect, and it actually had a protective effect. Yeah. Essentially, this patient had protective SARS antibodies that prevented cells from getting infected by 2019 NCOV. I feel like this kind of reminds us of something we learn when we first learn about vaccines, which yeah. is, remember, milkmaids that milked cows that had contracted cowpox actually didn't get smallpox because these two pox viruses are a little bit similar. So essentially yeah. being infected with something similar protected you against other sorts of similar viruses. It's really nice knowing that your immune system is seeing the similar virus and also recognizing it as like a foreign invader and trying to protect you. This makes targeting SARS and the novel coronavirus a little bit more feasible because they do share these similar pathways. A SARS vaccine was actually previously developed after the outbreak. It was just never put onto the market since the outbreak was contained. But this allows us to start thinking, okay, could we actually use this vaccine that was never put into use since we were able to stop the outbreak and vaccinate people at risk for coronavirus. Yeah, and it's a really common theme with emerging infectious disease, especially emerging viral infections, that a new viral pandemic can hit really quickly and science takes a while to actually work. So there's definitely a mobilization in the field to use prior information about similar viruses to target a new virus that may be in the similar family or class. So it's basically just building on older information to help us be more prepared in the future when there's more pandemics. Understanding how viruses work 
work is really, really critical in being able to quickly develop trial treatments, preventative methods, knowing how viruses spread, knowing who they can affect and who's most susceptible. These are all really important questions to answer when we want to stop, treat, and prevent viral outbreaks. So knowing that this virus is similar to one we've seen before really propels us forward a lot and gives us a step up in answering all these questions for 2019 NCOV. And again, it identifies both TMPRSS2 and ACE2 as potential targets for treatment in order to stop viral entry. Like we said before, there's still a lot of unknowns about this relatively new pandemic but there are some things that we have been able to characterize about the virus. When we compare the novel coronavirus to viruses like the flu, scientists have observed that it is more infectious than the flu. However, the total number of people who have been infected with NCOV is lower than the flu. And what we mean by that is essentially for every person that gets coronavirus, they're more likely to infect more people than someone with the flu. And this is important, but if we think about it, currently in the U.S. there have actually only been 13 documented cases of 2019 NCOV with zero deaths. And if we compare that to 180,000 hospitalized patients with the flu with 10,000 deaths, and that's just this flu season, the 2019 to 2020 flu season. That's magnitudes higher than what we've seen from 2019 NCOV. Of course, it's normal to be scared by this new virus, but we have a virus that is sort of an epidemic every year, which is the flu, which is still very infectious and also causes deaths, especially in both young and old and immunocompromised patients. One of the headlines I've been seeing a lot recently is NCOV surpasses number of deaths compared to SARS. But something really important to remember is 2019 NCOV also seems to be less deadly than SARS. Currently, the death rate seems to hover somewhere between 2 and 3%. Again, these numbers can change. And that's compared to SARS, where we saw a 10% death rate. Essentially, 10% of people who got SARS died or 36% for MERS, which is a huge number. More than a third of people who got MERS died. But since we've had more total number of people infected with 2019 NCOP, the absolute number of deaths has surpassed that of SARS. It's still a big deal, but it also puts it into perspective that if you do get 2019 NCOP, your chances of surviving are a lot better than if you were to get SARS or MERS. And a lot of the people who have died, they're people with weak immune systems, they might be immunosuppressed, a lot of them are elderly, they might have other underlying medical conditions, they might already be sick. So these are people who are already more susceptible to viruses and other sorts of infections. Mm -hmm. And again, just to put this in context of an epidemic we're more familiar with, which is the flu, each year the flu kills and has killed many more people than this current epidemic that we're seeing. And again, we're not trying to trivialize the current outbreak, but it's important just to keep epidemics and pandemics in perspective. And it's important to compare the transmission speed and the number of people infected and the death rates, like Derek has said. Mm -hmm. And a lot of really great work has already been done on 2019 NCOV, even though this epidemic only started around a little over a month ago. The virus sequence has been identified, which allows for better and quicker creation of vaccines and different treatments. 
But again, bring this back into perspective. If I told you there is a vaccine for the 2019 NCOV, would you get it? I think a lot of people, if they were in a country that's at risk, they would say yes. But we already have a vaccine for something that has killed more people, the flu. Mm, yeah. This is why medical professionals really push the flu vaccine because you're not only protecting yourself, you're protecting other people around you. And a lot of us have seen the flu be deadly in the medical context already. In terms of future directions for this paper, a vaccine is obviously not available right now. And these things take time. The soonest it would be available is within months, which hopefully by that time we have this outbreak under control. It's likely not going to be out for another year. But the thing is, these outbreaks reemerge or they can evolve. And we can actually benefit maybe from a future reemergence of this virus or something similar like we did with SARS. So studying this is still a really, really important thing. Lastly, we also just want to say that we want to celebrate the life of Dr. Li Wenliang. He's an ophthalmologist from Wuhan, China. He died of the coronavirus on February 7th. And he's a really important figure because he actually tried to warn other people about this respiratory virus that seemed to be affecting and maybe even killing a lot of people. But unfortunately, he was silenced by local government officials. So we just want to remember his contributions and make sure that he's not forgotten. And that obviously, as scientists, we're all very, very grateful for the role that he's played. Yeah, absolutely. Lastly, we want to talk a little bit about BioArchive, which is where this paper was deposited. And BioArchive is really changing the game. It is. So what exactly is BioArchive? Well, for scientists, in order for us scientists to publish papers in journals, it has to go through this process known as peer review, where it's scrutinized by other experts in the field. Peer review is a necessary part of science because it's having other scientists read your work and make sure that it's scientifically and technically sound. But the problem with that process is that it can take many, many months to actually get your work to publication. So there's sort of a lag time between getting your work publicized for the rest of the scientific community to read. So that's the need that BioArchive is filling, is that scientists can actually publish their work that's been submitted that still needs to be peer-reviewed so that other scientists and other people interested in their work can read it before actual publication. There are also a lot of other barriers just besides peer review and time. A lot of these journals actually require a big publishing fee. I don't know if this is common knowledge, but scientists actually pay journals to have their work published in there. And sometimes this fee can be thousands and thousands of Mm -hmm. dollars and can be prohibitive for a lot of people. And even more prohibitive might be the fact that a lot of journals, scientists actually have to pay in order to see work that has been published there. So you have to pay to publish your work and then you have to pay to see other people's work published in that journal as well. And we're not talking about like $5. A lot of these can be hundreds of dollars just to see a single article. Yeah. I like BioArchive because I feel like it represents what science is really about, which is like free sharing of ideas and collaboration. And this is sort of addressing a lot of the problems people have with the huge emphasis on publications we have in science is that it is prohibitive in these ways that Derek has discussed. So BioArchive is sort of freeing up the science to be a better community of collaborators. Mm-hmm. 
The only caveat is, again, we said that BioArchive is where a lot of people put their papers before they've gone through peer review. Peer review is still definitely a necessary process. It's important to have other scientists critique your work. That's how you can get a fresh perspective on things and really improve your work. And a lot of this work hasn't actually been peer reviewed. Mm -hmm. So there are caveats to Mm -hmm. it as well. If you look at BioArchive for papers that have been published on the novel coronavirus, there are actually hundreds of preprint articles since the outbreak started just a little over a month ago. We now have the full sequence of the virus. There's a lot of studies on how the virus has evolved and its jump into humans. And there's been a lot of studies on how the virus functions. BioArchive is now this forum that allows us to corroborate, discuss, critique each other's work to improve it and ultimately hopefully have an impact on patients who actually have gotten this virus and an impact on preventing its spread. It's really allowed for like a lightning speed, breakneck pace of how 2019 NCOV infects humans. And one of the really cool things that has happened is that we've discovered that we can actually repurpose antiviral drugs for other diseases to potentially even treat 2019 NCOV. There's been anecdotal evidence that HIV drugs might be effective in treating 2019 NCOV, which is really, really cool. Yeah, especially when we think of normal science, it can take up to like 30 years to get a discovery into an actual drug. So Mm -hmm. like you said, these are the times that call for really rapid turnover. For Ellen and I, BioArchive has slowly become more and more popular around when we started our science training. So it's been really cool for us to see how BioArchive has evolved and how science has become more inclusive for all people from all different backgrounds. Yeah, and I hope that trend continues in other ways as well. Yeah. Thanks for listening to us this week. We're currently recording this from our med school because we were like, I think it's really important for us to get an episode out on coronavirus and tell you about the research that's going on. So thanks for listening. Yeah, thank you.